0: Salutations! Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. You dug into the
1: bag, you reach deep inside <laughs> yourself. In the dog days
0: of NBA winter. I'm in my bag. I gotta bag, hand it to you. As you might say. You really are in your bag. I gotta
1: hand it to you. You came out with salutations, so
0: as I said the last time I hosted, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel and
1: no, I mean, think mean, you the a little scraping, closer to the top this time.
0: <laughs> the scraping continues. Um, we are going to kind of try and return to some level of normalcy here. Obviously, it's been an extremely emotional week around the NBA as everybody continues to grapple with and just wrap their heads around the the loss of Kobe Bryant. And we've seen, I think, pretty much every team that has played games since then has offered some sort of tribute to him and his daughter and the victims of that helicopter crash it's it's been emotional for us as well but we're we're gonna try and press on and like i said try to return to some semblance of normalcy here by indulging in some familiar comforts and i can think of no more familiar comfort for this podcast or for my co-host than clowning the new york knickerbockers So I think that's where we're going to start off today's episode. And um, I'm going to kick it over to you, Cash. You had a piece go up today about today being the the one-year anniversary of the Kristaps Porzingis trade. And I think, fittingly, it's been another week of embarrassment and controversy for the New York Knicks. So let's dig into that. Let's talk about that game that they had against the Memphis Grizzlies and the fallout from that. And we can talk about the trade and where both the Knicks and the Mavericks find themselves a year later.
1: All right. There's a lot to get to because it's the Knicks and it's a clown show as usual. So for one, Wednesday night was Bush league, Alfred Payton straight up tackling Jay Crowder on a three point attempt because The Knicks are upset that he stole the inbounds, and then, not necessarily that he stole the inbounds, but that he was going to then immediately take a three when they were already up, whatever it was, big, with 50 seconds left. Okay, first of all, uh, what did you expect him to do? Dribble out the clock with 50 seconds left? Like, just because you guys are an embarrassment to the game of professional basketball, okay, Alfred Payton, you and your team are an embarrassment to the game of professional basketball, and you quit playing down 20. And you lazily throw this inbounds pass that's easily stolen, and you guys start moving, assuming that the game is just over when it's not, and it's not even like the shot clock's not even turned off. Just because you guys do that doesn't mean Jay Crowder
0: has to do that, right? Who's really disrespecting the game here? Is exactly. it the team that's continuing to play until the final buzzer? And like you said, it's not like the shot clock was dead. Oh, there were still fifty, 50- and you could have dribbled out the game clock. There was still a possession to be had there. Right. Like you said, 50 seconds left. And he took a three-pointer. Like, you are the ones who are disrespecting the game by deciding to stop playing with the minute to go, by getting curb stomped in your own building by 20 points.
1: There should be two options for Jay Crowder there. If no one on the defensive side is going to play, it's either take the open three... Or uh, run into the clear lane and throw a dunk down. Right. Because those are the best, probably
0: high percentage plays. He gave them a chance, too. Like, he dribbled it for a couple seconds waiting for anybody to come and guard him, and nobody did, so... The Knicks are a joke. And then they reveal themselves further as the
1: joke they are by what happened after, and, like, Marcus Morris randomly shoves Ja Morant. Uh, And then after the game, obviously, he has those misogynistic comments when he says
0: that Jay Crowder... um, I have the quote here. He okay. said, he has a lot of female tendencies on the court, flopping and just throwing his head back the entire game. It's a man's game, and you just get tired of it at the end of the day. His game is soft. He's soft. That's just how he carries himself. It's just very woman-like, which, I mean, using femininity as a pejorative is pretty grotesque. He later went on to say as a form of apology, I guess, that it was just the heat of the moment and he didn't mean any disrespect, which is if that's where your head goes in the heat of the moment, then I really think this is something that hadn't been in your head before. And I think we ought to be at a point, you know, in the year 2020 where uh, we're just washing that kind of language out of the game, saying stuff like it's a man's game yeah. and like uh, associating stuff like flopping with with being quote-unquote woman like is just – I don't even know what that's supposed to mean.
1: Well, it's the words of an immature, foolish man. And uh, I don't think it's surprising that the words came out of Marcus Morris's mouth. No. If you remember in the preseason when – who did Marcus Morris smash on the top of the head with the ball, remember? It was somebody
0: on the Wizards. Yeah,
1: and I remember saying at the time, like – well, get used to it, Knicks. Like this is the this is like the type of veteran presence <clears throat> that the Knicks decided to surround their young players with, and yeah. I think it kind of came to fruition again. Like now, I'm not saying the Marcus Morris being on the team is the reason Alfred Payton did right. what he did, but you know what? When you have operated the way the Knicks have for as long as they have, and when you straight up have the reputation Morris has. Um, In the league And then you say what he said And you see what unfolds You lose the benefit of the doubt Yeah So I am going to jump To the conclusion That maybe having Marcus Morris Around some of these young players Isn't the best
0: idea Not only that But when that happened In the preseason Like I thought it was Kind of funny You know I didn't think uh, He got Oh it was funny He got booted from the game I think Um, but then afterwards he sort of tried to frame it as like, oh, this is the kind of toughness that we need where it's like,
1: which is why I was then making fun of like the fact like this, oh, this is the guy you're going to have set an example for you. Yeah.
0: And like to bring it back to what happened on Wednesday night, like, I'm sorry, you want to talk about being soft? Like how about acting like a petulant child when you're losing a game by 20 and you body check somebody because they're taking a three? That is soft. That is pathetic. That is awful sportsmanship. It's dangerous. It's ridiculous. It's the kind of thing that has plagued baseball for years, these unwritten rules where somebody shows you up or someone quote-unquote disrespects the game. By by, playing it better and harder than you. Exactly. And, you know, the stuff like I I just think in baseball when you throw at a guy because he shows you up because he, like, pimps a home run or something like that is so – it just runs counter to, like, the spirit of what sports ought to be about. And the fact that that's somehow gotten written into this unspoken language of the game is – just idiotic And I think to like Pose as some sort of like A gritty Hard-nosed Tough player Which I actually think That Marcus Morris is For the most part yeah. Like he can be a gritty defender He plays hard Like I think he's a hits pretty some, good hits player Hit some big shots Yeah, absolutely I'm like that's That's the kind of stuff That you can stand behind And say like This is what I'm about But bopping somebody On the nose with a basketball Getting into a fracas Because You know A Shunning
1: guy a 20-year-old rookie Who wasn't even involved in it
0: and then coming out with comments like this, um, you know, using womanhood or femininity in a negative light, you're just making a clown of yourself. And I think, I hope that this leads to him actually like doing some serious reflection rather than just putting out a statement saying, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. It was heat of the moment because he got some backlash about it, which just wasn't convincing to me at all.
1: Do you think, I mean, I guess there's no way of knowing, but I wonder if if this would affect at all any teams that were potentially interested. Like, I doubt it
0: because... I highly doubt it. I, I mean, I, I'm really cynical about this stuff in general. Yeah. And there are players who are employed in the league who have done far worse stuff than this and who still have jobs. Yeah. Like, I mean, Derrick Rose has been in trade rumors. Right. So I don't think, yeah. you know, these comments are really going to affect anything. I just think it's a bad look for him personally. But uh, ultimately, I don't think a team that was interested in acquiring Marcus Morris is now going to say, yeah, you know what? Keep them. And I think, like I said, I just hope that it is used as kind of a uh, teaching moment. I think uh, these are all sort of opportunities for people to learn and get better.
1: Well, an area that hopefully the Knicks learn and get better in is in the area of the uh, plumbing in the visiting <laughs> locker room. Because according to John Morant, as if everything that happened Wednesday night wasn't embarrassing enough for those New York Knickerbockers, John Morant then says that the hot water and the water pressure in the Knicks locker room were very, uh, clearly not up to standards. Non-existent. Yeah, not, I was going to say not up to standards, but better, non-existent. So, just the cherry on top of this absolute trash Sunday the Knicks served up Wednesday night.
0: I guess we you want to take this back to, to the one-year anniversary of the Poison trade and how this has maybe worked out for the Knicks?
1: Yeah. Um I think if you look at the two teams involved, so the way I wrote it was the three major parties, Porzingis, the Mavs, and the Knicks. From Porzingis' perspective, I would, I would guess that you know a year ago or just before the trade, when the rumors came out that he wanted out of New York, he probably had three major things on his mind. Get out of New York, apparently, get paid, and get healthy. Well, mission accomplished. Because he got all three of those things in the last year. And oh, by the way, by getting out of New York, he also landed in a pretty good situation in Dallas. That with Doncic there, they look poised to contend for years. Now the downside, I guess, if you consider it a downside, is that because he's going to play with you know a ball-dominant superstar like Doncic, his personal numbers are going to come down. He'll never be the offensive focal point he was in New York. I don't really consider that a downside. I actually think this role is a lot better suited for him. We've talked in the past about how, you know, he was never the most efficient like post-up or ISO player anyway. It wasn't really part of his skill set. I think he's much better suited to being a uh, kind of a floor spacer and spot-up threat for Doncic on the offensive end and a rim protector, which he still is great at doing on the defensive end. I think it's worked out well. I think he and Doncic complement each other well. And so I think he's landed in a perfect spot. The Mavs land... You know, I guess it remains to be seen whether Porzingis really will be the number two on a contending team. But I think he has that potential. And I still think he can get even better from what he is right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite what he was two years ago, but I think he can creep closer towards that than what he is right now. So I think there's a potential here that the Mavs have landed the number two they needed behind their like transcendent talent. What I wrote about too, under the radar, is he living up to his salary? No. But Tim Hardaway Jr. has actually had a very solid season for the Mavs. He's shooting better than 39% from three on over six attempts per game. Not an impact defender, but a much improved defender from what he was in New York and Atlanta early in his career. So now you're looking at the fact that not only did the Mavs trade for a star-ish player in Porzingis, they traded for a star without really giving much up in exchange and in the process, also got by far the second best player in the deal because Wesley Matthews went to the Knicks. They waved him after a week. He's now starting on the best team in basketball, by the way. Uh, DeAndre Jordan went to the Knicks. He walked for nothing in free agency. And by the way, to add insult to injury, <laughs> was part of that coup the Nets had where they got Kyrie and right. KD. He was went, supposed
0: to help recruit those guys to, to the Knicks.
1: Exactly. Um, who am I missing? Oh, and then Dennis Smith Jr., okay, I talked about how like Hardaway has kind of had a nice um, progression with his development in Dallas. Dennis Smith's been the opposite in New York. This guy's hit an absolute wall. He looks like he's barely hanging on to being in the league right now. I think he's averaging five point. I had it written down. It was like five points on sub-40%, two-point field goal percentage, 30% three-point shooting, and 50% from the free throw. Like He is having a nightmare season in New York, and his development has completely regressed. So... You start looking at it, and it's like, all right, deal worked out great for Porzingis. Deal looks like it worked out pretty damn well for Dallas. Mm-hmm. The Knicks got nothing. What did they? The, here's what they have to show for trading the guy, once considered the unicorn that would drag them out of the abyss. Okay, Their
0: best homegrown player since Patrick Ewing. Their
1: be- say that again, Joe. Their best homegrown player since Patrick Ewing. They traded him while he was still on his rookie scale deal, technically. And a year later, what do they have to show for it? Dennis Smith Jr., a 2021 first-round pick and a 2023 top-10 protected first-round pick.
0: Which, by the way, given how good Luka Doncic is and how good it looks like the Mavs are going to be for the next few years, those yeah. picks are not looking super no, valuable. They're, basically, they a year after
1: trading the guy they once thought was going to be their franchise player for the next decade and a half, they ended up with Dennis Smith Jr., and what looks like a couple of late first round picks.
0: But Cash, that is... he might have taken the qualifying offer.
1: Oh my God, another point I made in my piece. People saying that he was threatening to take the qualifying offer are so out to lunch. This guy was coming off of a devastating knee injury, okay? And you're telling me he would have turned down guaranteed long-term money to sign a $4 million qualifying offer just to stick it to the Knicks? No. You know what we could have stuck it to the Knicks? Take their money and then demand a trade like a year <laughs> later.
0: I have an interesting question about that, actually. And I want to get to the Mavs side of this equation because I don't think it's that clear cut. If Porzingis had taken that qualifying offer, let's say he's having the exact same season that he's having now on the Knicks. And it's hard to kind of parse that because the season that he's having. Is very specific to the situation that he's in. I think he'd be playing a lot differently if he was on this Knicks team. Yeah, His sure. numbers would look a lot different.
1: I mean, those four games when Doncic went down, Porzingis averaged about twenty-three and thirteen.
0: But let's just say, for whatever reason, like let's just, let's say RJ Barrett was playing the role that Doncic was playing, albeit obviously not as well as Doncic's. And and Porzingis is playing more of like the stretch big role where he's not playing inside the arc so much, and he's serving more as a spot up guy than he is as like a hub on offense. Okay. This guy's shooting thirty nine percent from the field. Seven foot three, shooting thirty nine percent from the field. Forty three percent from two point range. He's been below average on threes, and obviously the spacing he provides is important. But um, just looking at the numbers, uh, he's—I don't—he hasn't had a great season. What do you think he would get in free agency if he'd taken that qualifying offer and became a UFA?
1: Well, I think the other—but you have to remember—is he'd become a UFA in a free agent class barren. Of
0: a free agent class that's barren, but also a uh, an off season in which only five teams have meaningful cap space.
1: I think he would have got close to the max.
0: Close to, but not like maybe still
1: like. You don't think a team like Atlanta? I don't know. Like I think I, I think a team like that. I think a team in a not necessarily a small market, but maybe a non glamour market mm-hmm. that has never had luck with free agents that maybe feels like they are a piece away from. At least being more relevant, like truly relevant, I think would have thrown a lot of money at Porzingis. And not, maybe not the full max. And obviously, they wouldn't have been able to give what Dallas gave because Dallas um, gave him the five year max, which you need his bird rights for. But I think a team would have come pretty close to giving him the four year max. I really do. I think, I think there would have been enough teams out there desperate for the type of appeal Porzingis could have commanded.
0: Here's another question for you. Who do you think is a better player right now? And who would you rather commit to long-term? Chris Porzingis, or Miles Turner? Because they're, at this point, very similar players. I know there's this idea of Porzingis as this unicorn who is both, you know, enormous and also can maybe handle the ball a bit, shoot the three. But does he do any of those things better than Turner? Like, to me, Turner is a better defender an equally good three-point shooter, and they both kind of play the same role where despite their size, they're not really asked to create anything in the post. And the value of those guys is that they can be rim protecting. You know, Porzingis doesn't necessarily play the five all that often, but defensively, like they're using him to hang close to the rim rather than chase guys out on the perimeter. Same thing with Turner. Like those guys, what they do is they protect the rim on one end of the floor and they space things out at the other end. And I don't know that Porzingis does those things better than Turner does them right now. That's, that's my feeling. And maybe there's more perceived upside there with Porzingis, but this season alone, has he been better than Turner? I'd say they've been about the same. What I, Okay, so I think the, the knock
1: against taking Porzingis in this argument would be he's got a knee issue in his past, which is pretty scary for a guy that big, especially. And injuries prior to that, too. Yes. The reason I would still lean Porzingis is that even though I admitted he didn't do it very efficiently in New York and it might not have been the role best suited for him, we've seen Porzingis in a situation where he had to be the guy. Now, mind you on a bad team, but he had to be the guy and he was like pretty prolific in doing it. We saw It was only a week and a half, but we saw him thrust into that role this season in a four-game sample and was pretty prolific doing it. I mean, he was 23 points, 13.8 rebounds, and like 2.8 blocks in a four-game sample where Dallas went 2-2 two and two without Doncic, got a big win in Philly. I think that was Philly's first home loss of the season. Maybe Miles Turner has never had that opportunity to be that guy. I just think that if they're very similar players and they're kind of having a similar season in the roles they're in, my default would be, like, if in some situation something happened and i needed one of those guys to step up and be like the true number 1 for a week, two weeks, maybe a month while things went haywire i would be feel much more comfortable with Porzingis being that guy than i ever would miles turner
0: that's fair i also think ultimately if you want to compete for championships neither of those guys is going to be your number 1 exactly you're looking for them to be complementary pieces so if they're both going to be complementary players I actually think I might prefer to have Turner because I think he's a better defender. Porzingis is a good defender. Don't would get me you, wrong. Would like you his... rather have Turner at equal money? You're saying, or because you think he'll? Because on equal money. Like okay, yeah. I think that's and and that's what I mean. Like, yeah. I, and I'm not saying that Dallas is going to regret that contract necessarily for all the reasons you mentioned and you know his fit with Doncic. Like, I think you know Doncic given. It's not like he needs to be ball dominant, right? He's not like Westbrook where playing him off the ball isn't viable. It's just that like their offense has been historically efficient with him essentially running the entirety of it and having everybody else sort of play off of him. So it's just made sense for them to use Porzingis in the way that they do. But if they use him as a traditional big man, it, it sort of hinders his value. I don't think it amplifies it. So... You know, if I'm looking at them on the money that they're on, like Turner on a four year, I think $72 million deal, to me is way more valuable than Porzingis on his deal.
1: Well, that I agree with. Like, given what they'll get, like, or what they'd get in the market, yes, I think Turner would be money better spent. But if it's equal value and I had to pick one, Mm -hmm. even if I didn't know what the rest of my team looked like, I would still take Porzingis.
0: Right. But the point is, I guess we're we're essentially saying that you're kind of splitting hairs between Porzingis and Turner in a vacuum their value is comparable right so let's say it was Miles Turner that the Knicks had traded instead of Kristaps Porzingis i, I would, think it would still look bad it would still
1: look terrible man you're a year later you got Dennis Smith Jr and a couple late yeah. first round picks but we
0: wouldn't be talking about it as this like egregiously bad move especially given that there was friction between him and the organization now granted a lot of that was the organization's fault mm-hmm. so you know they're not exempt from blame there, but I think, given that, also given the fact, you know, there was a, a an investigation from the NYPD into rape charges against him. Right. Which, which I, I don't know where that's at, but it's so kind of just disappeared. I looked into by the it wayside. just
1: well because I was going to write the story and I, you know, I didn't want it to seem like I was ignoring something so grave. But everything I could find, the the last thing you can find about it, like at it's all, from April of from last year, report, April, late April, early yeah. May. Um, No one really seems to know what's going on. Mark Cuban's last comments on the matter were that he's been instructed by federal authorities to not speak on the matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's up in the air, to be honest with you. Um, Porzingis' side is claiming it's an extortion attempt Mm -hmm. and that even uh, a letter that um, the woman says he wrote and signed off on to pay her off. Porzingis' team is even claiming that's actually a forged letter. Uh, Michelle Roberts had a statement at the time saying that based on what they know and what they've known about this is- like situation before it even got out to the public, they're fully in Porzingis' corner. I- again, obviously not trying to uh, minimize at all the allegations against them. Just that, first of all, we don't know. And the early indications were that the- Michelle Roberts and the Players Association seem to be behind them based on the evidence they have or the you know the investigation they've done.
0: Yeah, that's complicated, though. Like To me, that's you- basically just everybody sort of looking out for their own best interests. Like even, you know, Michelle Roberts, I think, has been a great advocate for the players' union. But when – I can't remember. I think it was Jeff Taylor who was a player on the Hornets who had, like, a domestic violence charge against him, and the league suspended him for 25 games. And Michelle Roberts was insanely critical of the league for that decision. So it's – you know, there are a lot of competing interests there, and I think ultimately – her job as the as a right. representative for the players yeah. no, is just, to support the players. So. I was
1: saying this this situation seems a little different only because when it first came out, the, it then came out that well, the player association, I think the Knicks have said they've actually known about this for a while.
0: Yeah, and I also don't want to give the Knicks any kind of like moral high ground here or but, and, say. And, that, and that's like,
1: another thing too. Like I don't think the Knicks are making this deal because of that because no. the Knicks have their own shady history. Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah the way women have been treated in that organization, and then they brought Isaiah Thomas back to coach their WNBA team. Yeah. So um, while the allegations against Porzingis obviously are very disturbing, and, you know, if we'll see where the legal investigation and the justice system kind of goes there. We'll have to wait and see. But I don't give the Knicks the Any credit of, saying, of maybe, you know, having some come-to-Jesus moment where they thought, oh, you know, this guy's accused of this. We need him out of our organization because I don't think for a second that's what happened. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the score app available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show.
0: Do you have anything else you want to add about this Knicks conversation before we move on?
1: No, no, I think, <laughs> think we I think, covered it. I think we're nixed out for a couple weeks.
0: All right, in that case, let's talk about some players who are actually deserving of accolades, and that is the NBA All Stars. The reserves were announced last night. Cash, you and I I think did pretty well. We were disappointed that we agreed on so many. We had all 12 of the same Eastern Conference All-Stars on our ballots and you know who else had all 12 of the same Eastern Conference All-Stars? The Eastern Conference All-Stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the the coaches, the coaches picked yeah. the coaches picked uh the reserves that lined up exactly with our own. Um, Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, Bam Adebayo, DeMontis Sabonis, Jason Tatum, and Chris Middleton joining Trey Young, Pascal Siakam, Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Kemba Walker. So obviously, we're not going to have any disagreements here because they're the exact same All-Stars that we chose. Not everybody feels the same way. There has been uh, much hand-wringing about this, starting with Bradley Beal. Starting and
1: ending with Bradley Beal. I've never... Look, well, you have some,
0: some Bucks players who are really going to bat for Eric Bledsoe, saying that, that, he, <laughs> that he had a case, which...
1: Eric, yeah, Eric Bledsoe's agent and girlfriend haven't come out, though, <laughs> and gone off about this. Have you seen what's happened with Bradley Beal?
0: Yeah, I have. So, first of all, he had that, that post-game interview last night where he called it disrespectful that he wasn't chosen. His agent, Mark Bartlestein, comes out and makes this long-winded statement about how it's sending the wrong message to leave Beal off of the All-Star team because he showed loyalty to the Wizards and is trying to make it work with a losing team. His fiance uh, went on the Wizards post-game show and said, it's a joke to me. She's talking about the fact that Trey Young made the All-Star team and Bradley Beal didn't. Uh, It's a joke to me, not taking away from his game. I've been watching him since he was in AAU with Brad's AAU team. But he's playing cherry-picking basketball. Not taking away from his game. (laughs) It's just a joke that this cherry-picker made the All-Star team. Yeah, and talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Like, I'm sorry, Bradley Beal hasn't played defense in two years. Um, She goes on to say it's a popularity contest. It's about who has the most followers on Instagram, who has the most likes, and it's a joke to me because my thing is you can't name five people that were selected for reserves on either the East or the West who are outplaying Bradley right now. Again, I can the, I, <laughs> the coaches pick the reserves, so I don't think they're looking at who has the most Instagram followers. But go ahead, what do you want to say?
1: Oh, I was going to say yeah. There are uh, there are fourteen reserves, I believe, between the two conferences. Yeah, I can name fourteen reserves named yesterday that are playing better basketball than Bradley Beal right now. Honestly, like maybe if, thirteen because I don't think Russell Westbrook should have
0: been there. Okay, well, we can get into that yeah. for sure. But honestly, if there were if there were fourteen spots on the All-Star roster, probably Beal would have made it in the East. I don't think it's some tremendous slight that he was essentially named like the 13th or 14th best player in the East and not one of the top 12. And it's probably true that if he was doing what he's doing now for a winning team, he probably would have gotten into the All-Star game. But guess what? He signed that extension with the Wizards. Nobody told him he had to do that. And (laughs) Uh, I don't consider it some great show of loyalty that he did so, especially now that he's coming out and saying, like, if I was on a better team, I would have made it. Well,
1: yeah, that's how this works. Also, let's be real here. That was not a show of loyalty to the Washington Wizards. That was a show of loyalty to his bank account, which all the power to him. He should absolutely be trying to maximize his earnings potential while he still can and playing and healthy. But let's call it like it is anyone who thought him signing that deal was just a show of loyalty to the Wizards. Like, come on, don't be so naive. Now I understand his agent has to say that, but like, if you believe that, come
0: on. And this is exactly what, and I agree with you. Like, I think every player, absolutely. It's their prerogative to try and maximize their earning potential while they're in the league. Their careers are short. Like they should, they should go in whatever direction they see fit. And like trying to make as much money as you can while you're in the league is a perfectly acceptable way to go about your job as an NBA player. But, this is the reason that I was disappointed, and I think a lot of other people were disappointed when he signed that extension and became ineligible to be traded this season, exactly because of this, because his talents are being wasted on a team with very little complementary talent, and he made the decision that he made. It was a totally acceptable decision for him personally, but I think we're seeing the, the sort of effects of that now, where a guy who's averaging 28 points and six assists, which I don't think he he wouldn't be putting up those numbers if he was on a better team, but I think he would still be putting up numbers yeah, and he's a great player and ideally putting in more effort at the defensive end of the floor. It's just I think it's difficult, yes, because Trey Young did get voted in the All Star game, and you could basically level the exact same criticisms against him. Right? The Wizards are terrible on defense, and Bradley Beal has been a part of that because he has given minimal effort on that end of the floor. The Hawks are terrible on defense, and Trey Young is a big part of that. At the end of the day, you're looking at, okay, well, what kind of impact are they making at the offensive end of the floor? And frankly, I don't think Beal has been as good offensively as Trey Young. She's Trey Young last night, 39 points, 18 assists. It, he's insane. In a win over the Sixers. He's insane as an offensive talent. And, and Beal is too, but I think both as a scorer and as a playmaker, Trey Young has him lapped. So, ultimately, you have two guys who are leading very poor teams and have been sieves on defense and you're picking between, and I know like Trey Young got, essentially got voted in by the fans, but even if I was picking and when we picked our all-stars, we picked Trey Young over Bradley Beal for yep. all the reasons that I just mentioned. So,
1: yeah, I think, I also think it's just funny how, you know, in Beal's situation, him and his agent, his fiancee are saying, well, like, you know, putting up these numbers, it's unfair. That just cause I'm not on a winning team. And then in Milwaukee, they're saying, oh, like Bledsoe's numbers aren't there, but look, you know, look at the team we have, how do we not get a third All-Star, it's just, obviously everyone's looking out for themselves, and I guess that's human, that's fine, I like the fact that, you know, guys are upset and want to be All-Stars and whatever, even, you know, like in Beal's case, already has his money and still wants to be like, hey, like, I still want to be an All-Star, that's fine, like, that's all well and good, personally, I remember last year when everyone was hating on Gobert for crying, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I'd rather have a guy cry for not by, because he didn't make the All-Star game than have what happened yesterday where your agent and your fiancé are making statements on your behalf about how unfair it is you didn't make it. And they, you know they, what? And I hope the same people that called out Gobert
0: for crying last year call out Beal in this situation. I think they probably will. I, you know, I, I don't see anybody out there like defending this. <laughs> but I don't see anyone ridiculing it the way they
1: ridiculed Gobert last year.
0: I, I've seen it get ridiculed quite a lot. I hope. But... The thing I'll say about Gobert, like I didn't have an issue with him crying and I got that he was emotional about it and I I was totally fine with that. The one thing that did sort of bug me about it was when he was like, I just think this sends the wrong message. You're, you know, you're basically teaching kids out there that defense doesn't matter, and so.
1: Well, Beal's now saying the same thing. You're sending that. And that's what message. I mean. And like
0: that's, you know, it, it kind of tracks with with what Bartelstein was saying on Beale's behalf, which is that it sends a bad message because it's like loyalty doesn't matter. It's like, come on, we don't need to do this where we're like moralizing this entire thing and saying like. All these, like, millions of kids are going to grow up now thinking that loyalty and defense don't matter because Bradley Beal and Rudy Gobert weren't picked as all-stars. Like, come on. You can be disappointed and say that you thought you deserved to make it without making this some grand statement about, like, what basketball means and the message you're sending to kids. Like, get the fuck out of here with that.
1: Yeah, agreed. Just be freaking honest about it. Say, look, every professional athlete, especially at the level these guys are at, when you're talking, like, the max player type guys even though it might seem crazy to us, they all think they're the best player. Like, I guarantee you Bradley Beal thinks that he could be the best player in the game just with the right opportunity, whatever. And you know what? I'm down with that. I get it. That's how they got to this level. I would much rather Bradley Beal just come out and say, I think it's ridiculous that I make the all-star game because I'm the best player in the game. How can the best... Like, I would rather have that. Just be honest about the fact it's your bravado, it's your confidence, it's your, like, how dare they keep me out of this game. I would rather that. Because at least then I know it's authenticity than this, like... It sends the wrong message. What are we saying about loyalty? Like, come on, man, get out of here.
0: Um, I think it was funny to contrast that too with Jalen Brown, who I think had an equally good case to make it in as an All Star and has reason to feel aggrieved for not making it. I think you know when we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about who we felt the toughest omissions for us were, it was Beal and Brown. And Brown was asked about it and he basically was like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. You know, it doesn't really matter. What I'm concerned about at the end of the day is winning in the playoffs. And like, there's no right or wrong way to go about this necessarily. People react to things in emotional ways and that's fine. But I just think the the showiness and, and the very public way in which Beal has wrung his hands about this and the way that Brown was just like, yeah, you know what, just going to keep working harder and try and get it done in the playoffs and hopefully make it next year. It's like, I, I just think there's a lot more dignity and professionalism in that. And um, I thought it made for quite a contrast.
1: Also, there are 24 all-star spots in the best basketball league in the world where there is probably more star talent than there has ever been before. You're not going to make the all-star game Every year you have what you perceive to be a good year. It's just not the case. So for you, your fans, like whoever, get it through your head. It's a very limited, exclusive club. And there are going to be tough omissions and snubs and what have you. Sometimes you're going to get the short end of the stick there. Deal with it. Grow the hell up. (laughs)
0: Let's move over to the West, where once again, we were pretty aligned and the coaches were pretty aligned with us as well with one exception Um, but the west reserves are Damian Lillard, Nikola Jokic, Rudy Gobert, Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell, Russell Westbrook, and Brandon Ingram and the one disagreement that you and I had is you had Ingram in there and I had Towns and I think if we were to do that again today I would have taken Ingram over Towns just because I don't think the Wolves have won a game since we did that. The Wolves may never win a game again. It's insane. Like that loss to the Kings where they were up, what, 17 points with two and a half minutes to yeah. play is literally inconceivable. It's unprecedented. It's uh, in the years of play-by-play tracking,
1: I think, in like the
0: 24 yeah. years it's been. It was something like, eight th- like over yeah. 8,000 It was almost
1: 9,000. Essentially, this was the first time in 9,000 such instances where the team trailing by 17 or more with
0: that little time left yeah. won. And while I continue to believe that this is not really Towns' fault, the fact is... You know, I don't think his supporting cast is like so terrible and hopeless that he doesn't have a chance of not necessarily turning it around, but at least just like winning a couple of games. The Hawks have managed to scrape together a couple of wins in that time, and so have the Wizards, despite their supporting cast being, like I think, I said, worse than the Wolves.
1: Hawks beat the Sixers last night with, yeah, the Sixers had a couple of injuries. They still had Embiid, Simmons, and Harris. Yeah.
0: And Trey went off for 39 and 18, and they beat the Sixers. And the fact that the Wolves are. 10 points per hundred possessions worse defensively with Towns on the floor than with him off, I think has to mean something too. So if I were doing it again, I would have had Ingram in there. Um, The coaches had Westbrook over Devin Booker, who was the last guy that we had on our ballots. And I think a lot of people were rightly aggrieved over that snub on Booker's behalf because he really has been tremendous this season. The Suns have a losing record, but that has not in any way been Booker's fault. And yes, he's not a plus defender. I think in spite of the fact that his defense has been better this year, I would still call him a minus defender, in fact. But the Suns have a plus three net rating with him on the floor, which is it's better than the Thunder's net rating. It's about the same as the Nuggets net rating for the season. Like They've been good when he's played offensively they've been 15 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor he's got 63 percent true shooting on a very high volume of shots plus you throw in the playmaking and i felt like this should have been a no-brainer with westbrook quite honestly his last 15 or 20 games he's been great yes and i think he and while
1: james harden has really struggled too like westbrook's kind of carried them the last month or so he really
0: has like his last 15 games, he's averaged 32.2 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, and shot 52.6% from the floor. And I think, you know, a big part of that is the fact that he's basically stopped taking threes, Thank God, which is pretty radical considering that he plays for the Rockets, right? Like he has just decided, I mean, he's shooting 23% from deep on the season and that's a problem, but he has found a way to create pretty efficient offense in spite of the fact that he isn't taking any attempts from beyond the arc. And he's also been getting to the free throw line a lot and shooting his free throws a lot better than he was early in the season, which has been really important too. That said, the first half of the season still matters. And that first half of the season was pretty disastrous for him. So I thought given their entire body of work, Booker should have gotten in over him. I don't think this is like egregious because I really do think Westbrook has, has played great recently. And you talk about you know the slump that Harden's in we talked a lot at the beginning of the season about how great they were when Harden was on the floor without Westbrook and how bad they were when Westbrook was on the floor without Harden. That trend has kind of reversed itself over the last 15 games where they've been way better with Westbrook on the floor than with him off. And they've actually been a lot worse with Harden on the floor than they have with him off. So I think that matters. I think, you know, that makes it more defensible to have Westbrook in there. And obviously when, you know, when the coaches are voting, I think they're always going to favor the guy who's been there and done it before, who's been around, who has experience uh, over a guy who hasn't made it before and whose reputation maybe hasn't caught up to his actual abilities yet.
1: Right. You know, Russ has the clout, and that does matter in this league. The one thing I'll say, too, is that when the coaches vote, a lot of times it's... and, and, And I don't even know if this makes sense because I think they should fear Devin Booker, and I'm sure they game plan for Devin Booker, but I think they think a lot of times of like maybe the guys that scare them, or to your point, they think maybe of the guys that have done it against their team before, right? Like how many times they've been burned by this guy, having to coach against them or having to game plan for him and the, um, the difficulty of that. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they still feel it's a little more fearful to have to go into a game against Russell Westbrook than they do against Devin Booker. I don't know why they th- think that anymore, but I think it's a possibility that they voted that way. Having said that, and as good as Russ has been the last month, I, I do think this is egregious. I think Devin Booker's been that good. You mentioned the positive net rate. This is now, again, I, I wrote about it last year. Like This is the second year in a row where, if you look at the numbers with Devin Booker on the court, like the Suns have been competitive with this guy on the court, and that says something. And he's trying harder on defense. Like, he mm-hmm. really is if you watch him. I think he is by far the most egregious omission. And I think for Russ to get a little bit of just the reputation nod over Booker really sucks. And I know the argument every year, whenever this happens, it was the same with Gobert last year. And, you know, in the end of Gobert made it this year. Um, The argument is usually well, like the young guy still has so many chances to make it. And it's like, not necessarily, like, I don't want to be the negative Nancy in the room here, but you never know what happens with injuries and what have you and just whatever. And like, to assume that a guy will just get another chance or be this good again next year, or whatever the case may be, be healthy again next year, and so he'll get rewarded down the line. I think that's a really shitty way of thinking. I think if a guy deserves to be an all-star this season, make him a damn all-star because you yeah. don't know when he'll get the chance again.
0: I'll also say, you know, even if Westbrook had gotten in, I think you could make a pretty strong case that Booker deserved to get in over Donovan Mitchell, over Brandon Ingram. Like, I think he was just as, if not even more deserving than those guys were. Uh, but the other kind of element of this is that every year, somebody pulls out of the game with an injury, and there's a replacement that is named. So some of these snubs we're talking about, you know, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, Jalen Brown. I think that probably at least a couple of those guys are going to get in as injury replacements. So I think you just hope, uh, if and when that happens, that Booker is the guy who, I I think it's Adam Silver, right? Who chooses the the injury replacements. Um, I guess you hope that he's the guy who gets the nod.
1: Yeah, I've long thought, and I've been saying it for years now, that I kind of wish they would add one or maybe even two rosters, but one for sure to each conference. Because most years, you're adding one or two as we go along, as injuries come up and guys pull out anyway. So, just start off with 13 or 14 guys on each roster. And then just don't add any unless one or two drop out, right? So, if you have 13 guys, you don't have to add any unless two drop out. If you have 14, you don't have to add any unless three drop out. And
0: the, the, well, Okay, but realistically, you don't have to add any either. It's not like... You don't need to play 12 guys in the All-Star game. Well, no, it's not but like, I also think... you like. They do it because it's a way of rewarding more people. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And I get that if you, you know, the argument against adding a roster spot in general is that it, you know, messes like historically it just messes everything up because like previous generations were going with this set of rules and now it's like the current generation gets an extra chance to make it and it warps things. If you're talking about how many All Star selections guys made and Hall of Fame candidacy, and it's like I don't really want to hear those arguments. Again, there is more star talent than there has ever been in this league. I think you can add one or even two roster spots. Now, maybe you get a year where like 14, 13 or 14 guys in the East could get tricky. That's also another reason why I just think the best 24, 26, 28 players should be in it, period, regardless of conference. Especially when it's no longer East versus West.
0: Yeah, well, that's why, I, I don't know. I Like, not that I don't take this stuff seriously. Like, it's part of our jobs and, you know, we when we... I talked about our all-star ballots a couple weeks ago. Like we took the process pretty seriously, d- like dove into the numbers and made, I thought, you know, well-considered cases for all the guys Came on close our to list. Calling each other clowns. <laughs> but um, ultimately, like when I'm talking about players, legacies and their careers, and we're looking at hall of fame cases and stuff like this, I really don't take the all-star selections that seriously because There's just so much that goes into it. Like there's the fan vote. There are reputational votes. Um, Like where it happens in the season is so important because like if a guy misses 15 games at the start of the season rather than the end of the season or a guy goes on a crazy hot streak at the start of the season rather than at the end of the season, then, you know, they get voted into the All-Star game based on that, based on just timing. I think really the the most important thing is All-NBA. And that's where you're just... You know, you've talked about this a lot before about doing away with positional distinctions on the all NBA teams. And I think that makes way more sense because then you're really just picking the best players in the league for that season. The all-star game, at least, you actually do play a game. So even though the game's kind of a joke, it's basically just an exhibition you can at least make an argument that, well, you have to put actual rosters on the floor. So you should have something approximating like a lineup with actual positional distinctions. Whereas when it comes to all NBA, I really think you should just be picking the 15 best guys. You
1: mentioned the exhibition factor. So do you want to get into that? And the
0: yeah. Yeah. To- you want to talk about like the, the new format. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. You, you can explain it to me cause I don't really get it.
1: Essentially. It's not actually that complicated. It's, Still a four quarter basketball game. The first three quarters, it's still the same. Like you're accumulating a score through three quarters, okay? I think where the NBA confused everyone is they said the first three quarters all start at 0 0.
0: And because the way it works is that the New York Knicks are wondering if they can adopt the same format (laughs) for their games.
1: Yeah. Each quarter is worth something, essentially.
0: So both teams
1: are playing for a Chicago charity. The winner of the game gets X amount of dollars towards that charity. The way they've done it is that the winner of each quarter also gets to put hundred grand towards that charity. At the end of the three quarters, whatever the score is, you add 24 points to what the leading team score is, and that becomes the target score. Whoever hits that score first wins the game. So if it's, say, 100 to 95 for Team Giannis after three quarters, the target score will be 124 which means the fourth quarter will just be whoever gets to 124 first. There's no clock. It's not the simplest thing to explain. But again, I think the NBA confused some people, at least from what I could see on Twitter, because they were talking about how every quarter starts at zero zero, and then there's Target. You don't have to tell people about the zero zero thing. Just say, the first three quarters, there's a prize for winning each quarter. And right, why the do quarter, they have to wipe the scores Exactly. Off. That's where I think they confused everyone and they had to add like two bullet points uh, to explain it and people got lost in the sauce. And yeah, that's never a good thing when you want people to tune in if they're confused. I will say in general, obviously it's gimmicky, but it's the All-Star game. I don't really mind it. They found a way to work the Kobe tribute in there with uh, the 24-point target in the Mm end. I'm fine with it. Try something new.
0: I assume also that that's not going to be the only... Way that, right. they, that they honor Kobe throughout that weekend exactly. I'm sure they'll find other ways to yeah. work that in uh-huh. um, I find that to be a sort of not necessarily convoluted, but it's just kind of a an obscure right. thing to to shoehorn in there as a way to honor him, but again, I think they'll find other ways to do so and um i mean I, I, a lot of people have suggested that the team should wear numbers twenty four and eight, yeah, um you know maybe eight. For one team and 24 for the other which I think would be A cool way of yep. doing it and obviously a much more visible Tribute than just saying Okay we're going to add 24 to this Team score to make it a target number I think that's something people would be able To see and that you know a tangible Thing like that would probably be a lot more impactful And meaningful to people watching the game
1: Agreed 100% I'd rather have that than, than What they've done again I don't hate the gimmick they've come up with, you know, let's see how it works. I guess it's cool that there will be a game-winning shot, you could say. And and even in that case, it's almost like an homage to Kobe, whether they intended that or not, because there will be a game-winning shot. I, I'm okay with the gimmick. I just think they could have done a much better job of explaining it, of making it a lot simpler for people to understand. I saw some people, you know, talking about how this could impact an already low rating season for the NBA. I'd actually argue against that. I think whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, I think if anything, there's more incentive to tune in to something that's a little different, especially when it's in an exhibition format and it doesn't really matter, than there would be a ha- if, if it was just
0: the standard. Yeah, I don't see it. Re- like, and this is coming from somebody who doesn't really ever watch the All-Star game. Honestly, I really like All-Star Saturday Night. I watch it every year, but I don't think I've watched... A single all-star game the entire way through in my entire life wow i just it's just never captivated me i don't find it enjoyable to watch i'll tune in for a bit and like you'll see some highlight plays and it's kind of cool but i just don't really care that much um that's just me so it's not going to change how i watch the game at all but i think for somebody who does watch the game every year and does really enjoy it as an exhibition i don't think this is going to change anybody's viewing habit you know like i think the people who don't care about it and don't watch it will continue to not care and not watch it and the people who do will continue to watch it i don't know that it's going to move the needle in either direction
1: yeah the the other thing i was gonna mention is what do you think um so the other question i was going to ask is what do you think of the idea people have thrown out there of uh naming the all-star game mvp award after kobe i really like that actually
0: so I. I think uh that because that trophy doesn't have a name it doesn't no and i think you know, most of the other meaningful pieces of hardware in the NBA do have names. And I think it's tricky when you start thinking about renaming one of those trophies, but for one that doesn't have a name and one that also I think really does encapsulate Kobe Bryant. And like, I mean, he, what what did he play? 20 seasons and he was an all-star in 18 of them. And one of the ones that he wasn't an all-star in, was the lockout shortened season when there was no all-star game so
1: 18 of 19
0: so basically yeah 18 of 19 years when there was an all-star game kobe was in the all-star game and he must have won that award what at least three times i think
1: three times yeah i think he has the record i believe he has the record tied for the record for most four
0: times wow yeah so i think given that given the number of times that he played in that game and having won the award four times i feel like that would be a pretty perfect tribute to him, so I'm I'm totally on board with that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think they should do that um, for sure. Actually, and I also think that so you know like the the players' association has their awards, the the player voted awards. I think the player voted, like the peer voted MVP, should become a more major award. Similar, so the NHL, for example, does it. They've got yeah the, the Lester
0: har- Lester B Pearson.
1: No, that's the uh, the sportsmanship award. I believe the Ted Lindsay Award is the. But yeah, so at the NHL, they've got the Hart Trophy, which is the regular MVP media voted. And then there's the player voted MVP award, which is actually considered one of their major awards. I'd actually like the NBA to include a peer voted MVP award among their major awards. And I think that should be named after Kobe Bryant because of, you know, everything we've talked about, what he meant to his peers, the impact he had on his peers, and, you know, whether it matched the public perception of his overall status or, You know, like a stat nerd's perception of his overall status. The way his peers viewed him was on a completely other level. And so I think it would actually be really appropriate to make the player-voted MVP award a more major award and to name it after him.
0: Right, because Kobe only won one MVP in his career. And I feel like if that award had been a thing, he probably would have won it four or five times. Who do you think would win it this year? A player-voted? Yeah. I think Giannis might might still win it.
1: Yeah. Would still win it, yeah. Because like... I kind of feel like LeBron. Lebr- yeah, maybe LeBron. I was, If not Giannis, then it'd be LeBron. I don't think it would be Harden. I don't think they'd give it to Donch just because he's like young and I think that would work against him mm-hmm. in a player-voted award. I think it would be LeBron or yeah. Giannis.
0: Maybe Kawhi. I feel like the players now have a lot of respect for Kawhi, yeah, especially but what I, he did last year.
1: I do think the like load management, even though the players are mm-hmm. obviously pro-taking-care-of-your-body, I think that they would vote against him because of that.
0: It does seem to have rubbed some people the wrong yeah. way. Yeah. Um, All right, let's just close out quickly. I feel like maybe we can just make this like a short recurring segment in all our episodes from here on out because it has become such a fascination, I think. This race for the eighth seed in the Western Conference. Um, So we've talked about the Grizzlies a bunch. We've talked about the Pelicans a bunch. We haven't really talked about the Blazers all that much. And Damian Lillard right now is on one of the craziest hot streaks, you know, that any player has been on this entire season. Over his last six games, he is averaging 43.7 points, 5.5 rebounds, 9.2 assists, shooting 51.6% from the field, 50.6% from three on 13.5 attempts per game. That's ridiculous. And some of the threes that he's taking are like from 30 to 35 feet too. And maybe the craziest thing about that is the Blazers are only 3-3 three and three in those games. And it's just like, despite what Lillard has done this year. I think he's been unbelievable. I think it's been probably his best season. They just can't seem to make any meaningful headway. They're 21 and 27, three games behind the Grizzlies for eighth. They're down to 26th in the league in defense. I don't know. I mean, I, I keep saying, I feel like they have a run in them. They always seem to in the second half, just like go on some kind of surge. And I, I've said all along, like, I don't, I won't be surprised if any of these teams gets the eight seed, whether it's the Grizzlies, the Suns, the Spurs, the Pelicans, or the Blazers, but they are kind of running out of time here. And with the trade deadline on the horizon, um, I'm starting to wonder whether, like, are they going to make a move? Is there something aside from just like Nurkic coming back and them hoping that he can be the difference maker for them that is going to propel them into that eight seed? Probably not.
1: Like, I I still think they can get the eight seed, because I think Dame's that good, and I do think, you know, even if it's in limited minutes, I think Nurkic can make a difference. So, I still think they can, but I don't think them getting it will be because of a move they made that propels them forward. I just don't, I don't really know what move there is for them to make that could propel them
0: like that. Right. I mean, I think Gallo would... Really help them? Yeah, but... What, like, the, like com- how- the combination of getting Gallo and then having Nurkic come back?
1: Oh, I, absolutely. If they got Gallo, yeah. But you know
0: me, giddy up. I the mean, yeah.
1: Blazer. But what... Like, how are they getting Gallo? Right. Either?
0: I think they would probably have to throw, like, Anthony Simons into that deal. And I just don't think that... I don't even think that they should be thinking about doing that in pursuit of an eight seed for a guy who's an expiring. Exactly. So... I don't necessarily see that happening and and we've talked in the past about why a Kevin Love deal would be difficult for them to swallow just given the defensive limitations that would put on the team and how badly they'd be capped out between Love, McCollum, and Lillard going forward. So, I'm kind of with you. Like, I think any move they make is going to be like a marginal upgrade and to that point, you know, getting Trevor Ariza, I sort of thought he was cooked. Uh, There was really no place for him in Sacramento and he was not playing well there at all but he's looked pretty damn good in his three games for Portland so far so I I mean maybe a marginal upgrade could help them get the eighth seed I don't think that's out of the question
1: yeah not at all I mean we're talking about uh, a race for the eighth seed where at best maybe you need 42 wins and I don't even know if you'll need that so I think a marginal upgrade for a team like Portland that does have that type of star talent at the top could be enough
0: yeah I just thought it was important to point out how well Lillard is playing because it's been like such an anonymous season for him because the Blazers have been so meh Uh, but he has just like, he gets better every single year. And just when you think that he has kind of scraped the ceiling of his capabilities, he manages to get a little bit better. And, um, he's, you know, I think an unquestioned top 10 player at this point in time, you know, probably butting up against the top seven and, uh, the season he's had has been like, if the Blazers were winning, which obviously that's a big if, and, I've said I think his defense has fallen off, and he is a part of why Portland's twenty sixth in the league in defensive efficiency right now. But all that said, like if he had a better supporting cast and the Blazers were in the thick of the playoff race, he'd be in the MVP conversation. Damian Lillard is having the season. Bradley Beal thinks he's having. It. <laughs> I think that's really well put, um, and I think that's probably a good place to leave off for this episode. So the next time we talk to you will probably be after the trade deadline on Thursday, which hopefully we'll have a lot to talk about. Things are pretty quiet right now. But you do never really know with these things. And I think it often ends up being a case of dominoes where it's quiet until it's not. So we'll hope to have a flurry of activity on that day and have a lot to talk to you about then. But for now, we're going to sign off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.